This is a becoming creature. On this episode, we discuss the artist's life, the artistic process, how to see, taking big risks, developing the habit of doing, and so much more. I hope you enjoy. Today I am here with the very skilled oil painter Kendrick Tun, whose art you can find at Brant Roberts Gallery and Nick's Gallery. You can find him on Twitter, Instagram, and on his website at Kendrick, K-E-N-D-R-I-C, Ton, T-O-N-N. Kendrick is kind, engaging, clever, hardworking, and I really enjoy his incredible taste. Kendrick, welcome. Well, it's uh, good to be here, and thank you for having me. That's a very kind introduction. I'll try to live up to it. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. So, Kendrick, uh, you obviously have excellent taste in art. Uh, in what area would you say that you have the worst taste? What area do I have the worst taste? Um, <laughs> my, well, let's see. My taste in movies is entirely pedestrian. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have a strong fondness for the trashiest, lowest quality anime you can find. <laughs> and we're not necessarily needing to discuss some of the things I listen to while I'm actually painting. Well, give me give me an example. Give me one, just a little tidbit. Uh, well, I was listening to a listening to a compilation of the greatest hits of Rob Zombie while I was working last night. Wow. And I mean, no offense to Mister Zombie, I just think there's a <laughs> thematic mismatch here. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting that you're creating these these beautiful um, paintings that reach into kind of like. The, the history of art while you're listening to Rob Zombie and, and Strange Rock. That's great. Well, I, had, I was at an opening a while back, a year or two back, and I was talking uh -huh. to this woman, and she said, oh, you know, do you, do, you listen to, do you listen to music where you're painting? I bet you do. I bet you listen to classical music like Mozart <laughs> or something. And I just agreed with her and let it go by. That's that's nice though, but yeah, you don't want you don't want to be like, no, you're wrong. I uh, don't want to spoil the mystique, <laughs> right? Cultivating that persona. So my next question is: um, one of your main focuses is the nude. Can you tell me why are penises so small so often in art, like in in sculptures, in art generally, and? Does that have any effect on on how you choose to represent the nude? Um, okay, I've got so the 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 there's a standard issue answer to this more or less, uh, which you'll find in art history textbooks and surveys of sculpture, etc. Which is generally that the ancient Greeks viewed small penises as aesthetically appealing and large ones as kind of humorous or a sign of irrational barbarism or mm -hmm. out of controlness, which I'm not going to disagree with that, but I think um I think there's actually a practical artistic reason, which is that uh I mean as as kind of horny primates, which we all are, I think uh I mean not penises mm -hmm. specifically even, but genitals in general are particularly salient. 
so reducing them in size yeah. is a means of reducing their saliency in the in the finished image so they're that is to say a normal sized penis is abnormally uh, grabbing of attention that's interesting so you are manipulating um, people's experience by representing um, somebody's body as as inaccurate you're you're showing something that's not the way it really is represented in reality and that is a way to try to control the attention that the piece is receiving is there any other way that you try to manipulate someone's attention in in the same way that you might change the size of someone's genitals or or something else oh yeah absolutely and um i mean making image making is all about control of attention and control of focus and trying to Mm -hmm. find some way to direct a person's attention around the around the image or around the piece of artwork or whatever it is and you can do it in in different ways you can you can adjust the size of an element of the piece you can adjust the focus it's in you can blur things out or bring them into sharp focus hard edges jarring value contrasts Mm -hmm. um you can do things the way you lay things out on the page can help move move attention around, bring attention to some things, take it away from other things. Uh, the way you physically apply paint, if you're making right. a painting, can bring things to a greater level of attention. Referring to representation, I once read a thread you wrote on, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this properly, Cellini's Perseus holding the head of Medusa. You talk about the distinction between Perseus as a representation of a man rather than an actual person, um, such as a model. Can you talk a bit about your understanding and relationship with representation and the platonic ideal? I I know you've studied a bit of Plato and how uh, this comes into your own art and how it affects your interpretation of art. Yeah, absolutely. And and I should say that these are maybe idiosyncratic thoughts on my part. You might find yourself in a pickle if you try using anything I'm going to say at your dissertation defense. <laughs> uh, but I think at least in, in Western figurative artwork, you get two strong themes. And really the older one is figures and particularly nudes is kind of archetypical examples, instantiations of of concepts of broader groups or categories. So if you look at something like the Deriferous, the spear bearer, it's not really a particular person. It's more the idea of a warrior, the idea of balance, the idea of this this ideal man in a way. Mm-hmm. And whereas if you look at something like, oh, let's say a Lucian Freud painting, I mean, I think Lucian Freud was a great painter, but these are very, very specific people. That's a specific benefit supervisor with her specific face smashed on a specific couch in a specific way. It's a very Mm. individuated depiction of an accidental person as opposed to an essential person. And going going back to Cellini's Perseus, I would say that it's not it's much more in the first vein of those. It's representative of ideas of of that virtue in the Roman sense of um, of the 
you know the the way Florence wanted to depict itself as a city mm -hmm. and all of these things rather than being a depiction of Perseus as a character something someone you could have right. talked to in a practical way how do you make that distinction like if you have the specific setting and you have a specific model how do you turn that model into an idea of a person as you produce the art i mean in a sense you average things out you're finding mm -hmm. a finding an average person think about like think about those greek sculptures or something like the david Mm -hmm. that are very in some ways unparticularized there's a lot of particular detail but it's it's blurred out into a concept and it's not depicting a specific moment in time it's not depicting a person with a specific history there aren't scars there aren't individual wrinkles there we're generally removed from the world of individuation and accident and 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 the the day-to-day life and stories we all encounter and and I, sh I should say that my own work is not really at this at this extreme like i'm mm -hmm. much more interested in the individuals i'm working with as models it strikes me and this is my word i'm just making this up but it strikes me that in some of those sculptures it's almost like a cartoonification that if you actually met someone that looked like the sculpture he would look like a freak almost inhuman but it's strange because that is like the idea that we have of a man but like his his eyebrows might be bigger um his cheeks might be more full and he just has this largeness often that's kind of strange to think about but i'm gonna move on so you started painting relatively late in life how did you get started? Yeah, I did. I wasn't really ever one of the art kids. I wasn't that person in elementary school who was always drawing or whatever. But when I I went off to college, I went to a liberal, liberal arts school and ended up majoring in English. But mm. around my freshman year, I just, I don't have a reason for it. I just started drawing and kept on drawing and started getting more and more serious about it and then my senior year i took uh, two semesters of painting classes and i thought oh man this is this is uh this is really cool i like doing this i i mean i left school i wasn't sure what i was doing at that point i was 21 and i graduated and it's like okay i don't have any idea what i'm doing in life mm -hmm. but i've been doing a lot of drawing so i took kind of a gap year and ran off and got a job overseas and was doing that and what job? Made a, uh, I was teaching uh, English as a second language in Tokyo. What was that experience like? We'll, we'll get back <laughs> to the. We'll get back to how painting started. But what was it like teaching English? And you know, I'm guessing you you would never in Japan before. Um, that's scary. No, I'd, I'd, you know, well, I'd been to Japan as a for a semester as a student actually. Mm. So I had, and I was in the same general area. So I had it was kind of familiar territory uh -huh. and i wanted to go back yeah the the english teaching was really good for me it was um i mean you know i'm i'm 22 when i go my classes range from little kids who i've never really been around to mm -hmm. middle-aged or older people in the prime of their careers some of whom were very successful and 
must have thought it was kind of hilarious. What do people not know about teaching English overseas? Like, what did what did you pick up that surprised you? I mean, the so the particular school I was teaching at, and, and I can only really talk about Japan, but there mm-hmm. is, or at least at the time there was, a large sort of network of private schools that would take on private students, um, often high school students looking for extra English studies, um, you know, businessmen or people who needed English professionally. At least at my school, there were a large number of sort of late middle-aged empty nester women who are really just doing it as a social experience, uh, something to get out of the house and do with their friends. Mm. So you have the, you had these network of different schools and the one I was at was, they were good. They treated us very well and very fairly, but a number of them were very fly by night and you heard horror stories from the teachers Mm. of sort of exploitative conditions for, you know, fresh out of school kids like i was right i don't i couldn't really say what it's like today so you were teaching english and then what happened well i had decided i would not make any life decisions for six months Mm -hmm. and six months pass and i take stock of things and i've been working i've been going out and being a 22 year old in the big city and i've been i've been drawing i've been drawing a lot i've been drawing in bars i've been drawing in clubs i've been drawing in restaurants i've been going to locations to make drawings of shrines and temples and Mm -hmm. preserved aircraft and whatnot so i think about it a little bit more and say okay you know i think i will go back to school and i think i will look for some formal artistic training wow so you go to school for literature and then you go back to school for fine art, right? So mm-hmm. these, for most people, these are the like non-practical things that people <laughs> don't do, even though they want to, because they feel like they have to be, um, you know, concerned about the risks. And so you're taking all these risks. You're you're teaching English overseas and and you're you're studying um and pursuing your bliss so what makes you so special like why what is inside of you that allows you to take these risks when another person might just go and study accounting well uh possibly i'm just very dumb <laughs> but, but well, i've always i've always had good luck I've always, the thing I didn't even realize at the time was that I did my first college. I had a, essentially a full academic scholarship, which I didn't realize until much later how many options that gave me that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And, and similarly, when I went back to art school, I got a very generous academic scholarship, which just made things a practical possibility that wouldn't have been otherwise. All right. So... Painting for hours every day, months on end, it can be a bit of like a monastic life. Uh, I know Marakami once said, every day I go to my study and I sit at my desk and put the computer on it. At that moment, I have to open the door. It's a big, heavy door. You have to go into the other room, metaphorically, of course. And you have to come back to this side of the room and you have to shut the door. 
And I think he's talking a bit about the process of getting started that everybody has some difficulty with. Like, this is where people have their blocks. Um, how do you get started? And what advice can you, you give other people? Like, you're fully self-motivated in, in all of this. So what advice can you give to other people that might be more hesitant about starting a big project or something that's important to them? I will say certainly that I sometimes struggle with getting started like everyone else. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily want to call the accountant or get the oil changed either. Mm. A lot of what's worked for me has been constructing my life in a way that starting is less painful than the alternatives. I So what actually, go, let's go back to Japan here because I had ulterior motives in doing that. Um, when I went as a student, mm -hmm. I had noticed that you know, taken, of course, I made friends, I did did things, but taken out of my social context in a sort of lonelier, foreign situation, I found that I was drawing quite a lot to fill that up a little bit. And one of the, one of the very things I very explicitly had in mind in going back to Japan was, okay, let's, again, uproot myself, put myself in a lonely context, and see if that does the same thing if I keep drawing, if I keep moving mm -hmm. forward on that, and it did. And from that point, I've very much tried to construct my life in a way that the materials to work are around me, the situations to work are around me, and the alternatives generally are not. Um, I don't own a TV. I keep a. Wow. I keep telling myself I'm going to upgrade my gaming PC someday, but I probably never will <laughs> so and the, the materials to work are around and convenient to me and the materials to not work generally are less so when i was when i was abroad just things like taking taking the sketchbooks with me when you go having them you may not work if you have them with you but you definitely won't work if you don't right right absolutely so it's about availability and controlling uh, how far away something is. If you have to go to a sports bar to watch a game, then you're much less likely to spend time watching games than if, if the TV is in your bedroom. Exactly. Yeah. So the purpose of this show is to explore what people like yourself work so hard to figure out and bring it into the world in a consumable way so that other people can learn. I find that all work is often trying to answer a kind of question. Is there a question you're trying to answer with your artwork as you're going through the process? Certainly there are. Whether I can phrase them explicitly is, of course, another question. For me, and this dates back, I think, to a lot of my time abroad, uh, drawing and painting has always been a means of apprehending or a means of experiencing for me hmm. those i would not have spent a whole afternoon sitting and looking at a little unremarkable out of the way shinto shinto shrine if i weren't drawing it so it's a way of becoming present right yeah a way of becoming present a way of paying attention to things you might not necessarily pay attention to, and I hope mm -hmm. expressing that 
that sense of presence through the work itself, the sense of presence of another person or the sense of presence of a, a teapot or a lake, whatever it is. You spent a lot of your life not drawing and not painting, and now you dedicate so much time to it. What's the main impact that spending all of this time in, in deep focus, has it had any kind of effect on, on the way you see the world uh, or on your mind in some way? I'm sure it has. It's difficult to untangle from just the regular experience of getting older. It, mm -hmm. I think a lot about time, about the time to do things I'd like to do or become good enough to make the paintings I would like to make. And is that just because I'm not 15 anymore? Possibly. <laughs> How long does it take you to paint, um, you know, one of your larger works? The larger, the larger paintings, let's say a figure in an interior about 30 by 40 inches, I generally expect to actively have on the easel for about two months or so. Uh, typically, I'll have the model in for 40 hours, 50 hours. I don't track my own time. And I'll often bounce between projects. I'll have two or three things going at the same time, so it's hard to get a precise figure, but but usually I'll expect to have something like that kind of in active development for two months or so. So you're deciding to paint a model, or you're deciding to paint a samovar, and your paintings are taking months. How do you decide what you're going to produce? Well, the, if I'm painting a still life, I'll generally set it up and live with it a couple of days before I actually start working mm. on it. And sometimes I never do. I take it down and find something else that interests me more. With a model, of course, there's another person involved. And so there's a, there's a collaboration, a finding of something that works for the person and works for who they are and works for their body type, which is part of the fun of it. Just that sense of collaboration with the people I'm working with. Huh. What would you say is the most difficult thing about your work? I don't know. I don't have a pat answer for that. Like, mm. drawing hands is hard. I mean, I struggle with right. hands or proportions or whatever, like everyone else always does. But been really, especially as I've developed as a painter, trying to trying to reach out for a sense of greater wholeness in the works which i guess definitionally isn't an individual thing you can point to but i'd like the paintings to come across with an enormous sense of of unity and immediacy i was watching your documentary on on youtube and michelle brant of brant roberts galleries was explaining how you approach the gallery and that made me think more about your whole process, right? Because when we think of an artist, we think of doing the painting. But of course, you know, you're, you're out there on your own producing the art and you need to find a place for it. When I think about your artwork, I try to think about not just the piece itself, but everything that went into making the decision and finding um, a gallery for it or finding a home for it. And... There are so many skills connected to all of this, you know, selling, marketing, socializing. What 
is it like to have, um, you know, a job where you're not just sitting down and writing some code or you're, you're not just um, clocking in and then clocking out. This is like a whole life. Can you tell me about that a bit more? What do we not know? It is a, it's a, so it took me by surprise when I started painting. I like, I think the popular imagining, I imagined being in the studio and making the paintings and that's 98% of the job. You're mm -hmm. in your studio, you're at home, wherever you do your work and you're struggling to make these craft projects and do them. But then the 2% of it is things like meeting gallerists, networking, meeting with clients or potential clients, uh, talking to them, meeting with collectors, becoming friends with collectors, going to their parties uh, and making making these social things happen, which has been, I mean, I've been very lucky. I've been very privileged to end up in places that I would not have otherwise ended up in. It is sometimes kind of funny for a introverted and inarticulate person like me to end up in these situations. So you're creating these objects, right? It's not like digital art. You're creating these objects and then parting with them. Is that bittersweet? Like what, how does that feel compared to, it's not like, you know, harvesting wheat. You're, you're putting an idea into it. Um, and part of yourself into this object and then, and then parting with it. Uh, what is that experience like? That's that's something that's changed very much over the years for me. I remember when I first started drawing and first started painting, these individual objects, these drawings and paintings I would make were very uh, precious to me as objects. They were things I was anxious about being physically damaged. But as I've as I've gone along, as I've painted, my investment in it is less in the objects themselves and it becomes much mm -hmm. easier to let them go, to let them go out into the world because my investment in the whole process has become the process, the the making of paintings, the trying to become a better painter. So you start living, or at least I started living, in the cycle of doing rather than in the having of the things you make. Mm. Can you expand on that about being in the in the habit of doing? How do you cultivate that? Or is it something that's just developed over time? Did you do it intentionally? I suspect that to some degree it's something that happens naturally. If you've just started drawing, that one drawing you're making is 100% of your lifetime output. <laughs> if you've been drawing for 50 years, it is a substantially smaller factor. Right, right. Uh and probably some of it is just my own idiosyncratic nature. So speaking of parting with your paintings, um, you talk a bit on Twitter about um, commissions and how, how much people should charge. How should a new artist figure out how much to charge for their work if they've been working for a few years and haven't really been making money on it yet? Well... I guess the broadest answer for this is that an artist should charge as much as they can get and then a little bit more if at all possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> no, so, no, setting prices is hard. Setting prices is yeah. hard and stressful, and particularly when you don't have a sales record. Um, what I did, and I think this was a pretty good move, was I spent a lot of time 
looking at galleries, looking at people's websites, trying to identify people that were working in a similar manner to me at a similar level of quality at a similar mm. early career stage, and saying, okay, they're charging such and such amount for their pieces. So you're you're not only a painter, though. You're also a bit of a hotelier. Can you tell me what's more difficult, uh, painting or hosting Airbnbs? <laughs> well, yeah, I did uh, almost uh, through a series of accidental situations end up with a Airbnb, which has been quite a nice supplementary source of income, particularly during 2020 with all of its uh, complications. I will certainly say that the Airbnb hosting is more stressful, mm. but um, difficult. Well, <laughs> oh, I've got a, I've, and I should say, ninety-nine percent of guests have been fantastic. Haven't required anything unusual. They rent the room for however long, and they're great, and they're out of there. But of course, there mm -hmm. is that one percent. Yeah, what happened? Oh man. Uh, well. Just recently, a month or whenever it was, I guess a month ago, I had a fairly long booking a week over Thanksgiving, and uh -huh. I just started to get a, you know, ran into the guests when they checked in and kind of got bad vibes from them to begin with, and mm -hmm. then started hearing them shouting at each other through the walls in the mornings. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and then uh, then I was woken up one morning by not just shouting, but what sounded like hitting and screaming and sobbing and someone oh, falling man. on the floor. And, uh, I mean, it sounded bad, and by the time I got up and got dressed and I sort of went outside on my porch and I could still hear screaming and sobbing coming from, well, standing out on the street. So I called called the police and ended up ended up chucking them out, which was a whole day process, but they had absolutely trashed the place. Oh man. So mm -hmm. what what was it like after that? Like if they trashed the place, what's what's the process like? How long did it take you to fix all that? Um it took about three days. Thankfully there wasn't much damage as such. There was just uh -huh. a I mean trash everywhere. There was some evidence of drug usage. There was a I mean they'd been smoking in there, which takes ages to ages to deodorize and uh um, yeah. i think they had some extra people staying in there they'd put a quilt up over one of the window there's a window in the closet they'd put a quilt up over it which uh, when i went to take it down realized they'd put the quilt up by just stabbing it with a steak knife into the window trim <laughs> that's that's terrible yeah uh, it was uh, uh well they were they were some characters so how long have you been doing the Airbnb things? Because you said the 1% is bad. Like, uh, how, how many months or years have you been doing it? Uh, probably about two years now. All right. And do you have, uh, is it busy? Like, how much time does it take to do this? It's, um, it doesn't take a lot of time, but the f it goes nicely with the self-employed right. painting because... I mean, most most of it's right in the middle of the day. So if I were working a nine to five, I wouldn't be able to at least wouldn't be able to run it in the same way I do. Right. So yeah. So that's that's fortunate at least. But you do have to uh, handle fools sometimes, <laughs> and 
in one of your self-portraits, you're holding a brush in one hand and the tarot card of the fool in the other hand. What inspired that choice? I painted that painting at a personally difficult moment. There was some there was some relationship, uh, well, relationship drama isn't exactly the word. Perhaps relationship aftermath would be the word. Mm. Uh, some, I had just moved into the place I'm in now, which I was starting to realize was going to be a major process indeed to make livable. And I wasn't feeling particularly good about the art career at that point either. So I was having, having thoughts about a lot of things. I'm sure that everyone occasionally looks at the places they've gotten to in life and wonders uh, wonders if maybe there wasn't a better route along the way. Yeah, for sure. So you once wrote, everyone is born into an accidental world. Reactions piled on accidents. In Hausman's words, we're born a stranger and afraid in a world we never made. Uh, this This seems like it might connect to what you're saying. But what does that mean to you, a stranger and afraid in a world we never made? Well, I mean, the world obviously pre-exists us. There are massive structures, massive histories. Uh, Everything, everything we encounter is the product of enormous quantities of history and myth, war and accident. You just can't ever get away from it. So we're thrust into this world that's just the, and to even begin understanding it, you've got to try to swallow whole like a python this entire history of people just making decisions and having stupid accidents for thousands and thousands of years. Right. So it's kind of like you're taking the other side of life being meaningful in a way would you say that's true or how does meaning fit into this accidental world well i'm certainly not going to make the claim or indeed have the belief that life isn't meaningful Mm -hmm. i think people struggle to find meaning i think people look for it in places it's probably not to be found i think part of that search is finding things of an appropriate scale. Uh, I, at least, am not capable of rectifying the nation or rectifying the state or even rectifying my city. Hmm. I seem to max out at occasionally being kind to a friend who's in need, (laughs) which I think I do decently well. And in making some paintings, making some works that may have a certain level of quality and significance and may endure a few years longer than I do. Right, because you're spending a huge amount of time um, taking an idea and then putting it into the world. And I feel like there's got to be some kind of pursuit of meaning in all of that or, or trying to affect the world or trying to give something to the world. Uh, Would you have anything to add to that? I think people look for meaning, and I think a lot of people say to themselves, um, explicitly or implicitly, that, ah, you know, I want to find some meaning in my life, therefore I have to do the things that are meaningful. I have to do Mm. the big things. It's not meaningful if I'm not 
saving the world or improving the world. Right. Which is, I mean, if you can figure out how to do that and are capable of doing that, more power to you. But I think, at the very least, it is certainly valid and perhaps more likely to make the attempt to improve, to understand, and to give some significance to the things within your arm's reach. Mm -hmm. So you're saying, you know, change the world in the way that you can. I once heard somebody say that um, trying to save the world is actually a, a mark of depression. I guess what's important is to focus on the things that you do have control over. On your website, you wrote that the human experience has always been at the center of your work, enduring human concerns, themes, and stories, and central to that, the most universe of all subjects, the human figure. Your paintings, whatever other subject they may have, depict individual people opened up to common feelings. How do you seek to achieve that in your art? And why are you focusing on common feelings. I feel like that's tied to interacting with the things that are, are local to you and within your within your power. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my work is, is done in collaboration with these models, which is a, a significant part of that. And I often, once I find someone I have a good working relationship with, we'll work together for a year or two years or Generally, we'll work together until for some practical reason we can't work together anymore, is how it works. And I really hope I can identify and depict and convey some of that shock of recognition of another person, not necessarily explicate what's going on internally in that other person, but convey that sense of internality. Mm-hmm. of the encounter with an entity that has internality. Right, right, of course. And uh, you sometimes criticize the use of the word classics when you're referring to literature. And I had never really thought about that being being a problem. Um, in your opinion, what is the importance of literary classics and why are you opposed to thinking about them in the umbrella term classics? Uh, I just, uh, the umbrella term classics, I think, I think the way people use it, it lumps in three different things. Some people were talking about works from the classical world, uh, Homer or Hesiod or whoever. Some people were talking about sort of works that are older and very solidly rooted in the in the history of literature shakespeare or milton Mm -hmm. and some people were talking about very recent works that they had to read in public school like the scarlet letter huck finn or even even more recent works than that like um Mm -hmm. catcher in the rye so i just i think it's a I think it tends to be a term that leads to some confusion and when people are talking about these things. So you're recruiting models for your art and you also have to interact with people to sell and market your art. 
Can you tell me a bit about how you go about that process of, of finding people and how are you um, approaching galleries and other sources and how often are they reaching out to you? Well, starting starting with models, at this point, I've been pretty lucky. I very rarely actually have to look for models. I'm able to be quite lazy about that. Hmm. I worked for about two years with a with a fantastic model who was a professional ba- well, is a professional ballet dancer, and he sent me a message on a Instagram asking me if I was hiring, and and that's how it's been for me often recently i've been very spoiled as far as that goes but uh with and of course so the process of selling i've got a gallery i work with they handle particularly a lot of my still life's figures as well and they've got their client list of course Mm -hmm. so that a lot of that takes place on their end and they may indicate they want something from me for a show or for a client or for a particular thing like a commission. Yeah, like a commission or or a piece for a themed show. And I'll I'll bring them bring them pieces that I've been working on. Uh, for for collectors, there's a I do occasionally work on commission for collectors, but it's not the main thing I do. Largely I'm just doing works and then trying to find a place for them. It's not uncommon for someone to say, "Hey, you know, I've got this space over my fireplace and uh i was really thinking i would like a like a painting there and you know that i love pineapples so you know (laughs) at that point (laughs) at that point maybe i start thinking about making pineapple paintings and whatever proportion is required and it's not uncommon for me to post things on social media and then end up entering into a dialogue which is very rarely purely business and to the point with some stranger from the internet. And speaking of the internet, we live in this time where we're constantly connected and everybody is in their bubble of of belief. And um, I mean, I'm on Twitter all the time. We're just always connected. And you seem to have this incredible ability to separate yourself and get into this deep focus and uh, I think that makes you extremely rare. Can you talk a bit about how you interact with society? Like you're on Twitter as well. And how do you organize the fact that you're like, you're often on Twitter, but you're also entering this deep focus? How do you juggle those things? You know, I've been getting more active on Twitter this last year, which has been fun. I've made some friends. Uh, mm-hmm. I do try to create a space for my working time i try to as best i can put the phone away or put the laptop away and and create the space in which i can work i'm not always successful at that right i mean as as i said earlier i've generally tried to make my house perhaps a little more distraction free than it might otherwise be hmm so you were at the Florence Academy for four years. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what training you went through, what that was like being at the, that academy? Yeah, I had a, so I trained at the Florence Academy, which was mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, I remember the first day we were there, The at the time, at least, the Florence Academy had two branches, a the 
main one in Florence and then a very small branch campus in Sweden, which I ended up studying at both of them. But my first day in Florence, they we had a sort of orientation for the 25 or so of us who were starting. And mm -hmm. Dan, the director of the school, I still remember, was giving us a little his spiel and he said, uh, and you know, this this is really not an art school. What we're hoping to do here is give you a certain set of tools that then you can later on use to make art. And that's always, that's stuck with me. I think mm -hmm. because the school was very much about training, training you to see, training you to know your materials, training you to apply your materials, as well as reweighted things like art history and anatomy. Can you give me like a one minute lesson on how to see? <laughs> I feel like that's really useful. Can you just boil down four years into like one, one minute? Um, squint so hard that you can't tell what the object you're looking at is. You can only see blobs of light and dark and then open your eyes again and try to retain that sense of blobs of light and dark and then draw the shapes. Huh. So you're almost taking the meaning of the image away, right? Like, because if I see a chair, my mind is immediately building the schema of a, of a chair, and I'm leaning so much on my preconception of that thing. So you're saying that we try to forget the chair and just see the light, Right. Yeah, and it's not—it's not the only way to draw. I'm going to preface this by saying that right now. But it's a—it's um, all—it's a abstracting process in a sense, of learning to—and this was a big part of my first couple of years, learning to, to a greater extent, access the kind of raw information my eyes were providing to my brain before it's uh -huh. chunked and parsed into chairs and people and things like what raw information am I actually getting and how do I replicate that on a paper? Right. So can you tell me how your style changed over the years? You've been a full-time painter for what, almost a decade now. Um, how have you improved your process? And uh, because you, you obviously have a very large process, right? There's, it's not just painting. So how have you improved your process and how do you go about things differently than you did when you were just starting out? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I'm still, some things have gotten streamlined or a little less formalized, but I'm working in a manner not unlike the Florence Academy taught me. I have not mm. gone too terribly far from that. I'm a little less concerned with uh, perfectly representing the proportion and shape and value of the object I've seen. There's more translation into the kind of aesthetic effect I'm trying to get or the content, whatever it may be that I'm trying to get. You went to Florence Academy and you work with oil and you also do some sculptures that I've seen. Uh, why did you choose oil? And can you tell me a bit about why it's your preferred medium? Um, so I, I, when I, when I first started before the Florence Academy, I did try most, most of the major mediums. I really just liked oil. I liked the slowness of the process, the reworkability. 
Hmm. It seemed like a very big thing, something that I would never be able to master, and I liked that. I'll admit I had a kind of material distaste for acrylic paints. I don't think there's actually anything wrong with them, but I just don't really like the way they feel. Hmm. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of your life is defined by a constant exploration of experiences and ideas and you're you're willing to take a lot of um, risks or do things in a way that is very atypical for people that are often pursuing security and i feel like that's very um that seems like the only way that you can find your your favorite way to paint right if your favorite way to paint is oil the only way to do that is going through all of the mediums which you did and you've been to a lot of different countries and it it seems to me that you've just done a lot of work to figure out what you like so finally i just wanted to ask you uh do you know any lesser known artists that you want to draw some attention to and uh is there anybody that the listeners should check out oh man lesser lesser known artists that i'd like to boost or call attention to my old studio mate, Ellen Varkin Soderholm, I'm sure I'm butchering that accent, is a <laughs> is an il- illustrator. She's Swedish. She's working in Sweden. She's a very, very talented illustrator. Uh, there's a an old roommate of mine, a woodcarver, mainly named Patrick Burke, who does mainly ornamental woodcarving, sometimes sculptural work. He does a lot of architectural stuff that's just, just fantastic. If I were a billionaire i just buy him and tell him to carve everything (laughs) in my mansion (laughs) that's yeah that's that's awesome um i'll have to check it out so definitely send me their names um so that i can include them in the show notes do you have any final words anything you want to touch on um or anything that you want to say well i feel like we've gone over a lot of a lot of territory so i'd like to say thank you for having me on this podcast and taking the time to talk to me about my work and my process. I had a really great time. I learned a lot because I don't know a lot about this. And even just preparing for the show, I really learned a lot. Um, I enjoyed your documentary. It was so beautiful. And I hope more people check you out. Yeah, the studio I worked with on that did a fantastic job. They were really great to work with you, Creative Studios here in Columbus. Yeah, I loved it. And everybody should go check it out. Um, you can see it uh, by going to Kendrick's Twitter, which is K-E-N-D-R-I-C-T-O-N-N. And thank you so much for coming on, Kendrick. I had a lot of fun. Well, thank you for having me. This was quite a lot of fun. I really learned a lot from Kendrick. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more on my website, becomingcreature.substack.com where you can also subscribe for future episodes and show notes. Our music is by Frank Ivey and Murphy Chicken. I hope you enjoyed.